thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, whole food life that totally rocks. You're listening to Shiny Healthy You, the straight-talking natural health show for busy women, with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Today's guest is one of the Northern River's finest. In true Byron fashion, we actually met on the beach, walking into the water with surfboards under our arms. As we paddled out to the break, we struck up a conversation and the rest is history. This lady has been a friend, a mentor and an inspiration to me. She's a clinical nutritionist, a chef, a coach, an author and a speaker. She's even got a master's in gastronomic tourism under her belt. If you're wondering why it's taken so long to get her on the show, it's because she spends about half her life traveling the world, speaking at conferences and designing spa menus for resorts in exotic locations. Yep, she's living the dream. But I've finally managed to catch up with her and this is going to be such a fun chat. Please welcome to Shiny Healthy You, the beautiful Samantha Gowing. Woo! Hello, Jules. What a great intro, darling. And all, all of that's true, especially how we met. That's my favourite bit. I know. It's just such a Byron story, isn't it? Well, I think it's just it's so authentic to you and I, you know. I mean, that's that's what we say we are and that's how we did meet, you know, and I love that. It's It's really heartwarming. It's very honest. Yeah, yeah. And we've definitely bonded over a mutual love of food since then as well. True. Sammy, you came from a very interesting and rather eclectic background from being one of Melbourne's youngest ever female publicans and then being around the rock and roll scene and then you became a nutritionist and moved to Byron Bay. Now, that's um, quite a story, mate. Can you, <laughs> can you take us through how a progression like yeah. that even happens? <laughs> so in the, in the mid-90s, I began a great desire to understand more about nutrition and the catalyst for that was a loss of my father. My father died of cancer in 1991, uh, the year before he and I had taken on the mantle of the Grace Darling Hotel in Smith Street, Collingwood. And during the mid-90s, I was carrying plates of fish and chips out to our numerous hundred customers, and I felt I had a really strong duty of care to understand more about the trans fats and that, you know, beer-battered fish and chips was not necessarily the healthiest meal I could tra transport from table to table each week, especially on a Friday. So I couldn't change the physicality of an old bluestone hotel built in 1854, but I could certainly change my career path later on. And so by the end of the 90s, my brother Chris Gowling and I decided to sell our pub, lock, stock and barrel, and I wanted to understand a bit more about the body and nutrition. I began to get a little bit fitter. I was studying a certificate in fitness instruction as a fitness leader in Victoria and there was a day of nutrition on the 18-week course, just one day, can you believe it? And that was it. I was like, I'm going to grow up and be a nutritionist. And that kind of evolved into studying, furthering my study and writing a book about food and healing, which I thought I knew everything about. I then decided to study nutrition at in what is now Endeavour College of Natural Health and there was one course of nutrition, Nutrition One, and a subject called Food as Medicine. And those two subjects changed my life. And that was in 1999. So 
I ended up in in Byron Bay doing what I love, and and my main motivation was to write a book way back when that took a long a lot longer to bake, but I also wanted to have a certificate or a qualification that I could teach cooking, and that's really the um, the nuts and bolts or or the nuts and seeds about how I came to be a nutritionist. And you already got your chefy skills from working in Melbourne as well, didn't you? So that's how it all came together. Well. Um, that, a lot of people do do assume that, but actually, I was a caterer at the you know around my eighteenth, nineteenth birthday. I was in a um, small catering business with some friends called Portable Edible Festivities, and I'd always cooked. My grandmother taught me to cook, and my dad taught me to cook. I've never formally formally trained as a chef. It was just something that I've always had a passion for. I did a day in the kitchen in a two and a half hat restaurant in East Melbourne and then co-wrote the menus with chefs that I employed at the Grace Darling Hotel, which was Gowling's Grace Darling from 1990 to 98. So I've always known food. I've understand kitchen systems, kitchen brigades and so forth. I kind of evolved into becoming a chef because uh, I guess people just kept asking me to cook as well as run the front of house. So years later I then took on a mantle as an executive chef up here in the Northern Rivers. So it's an interesting journey how I came to be a chef. Yeah, and I, I love that you still love getting into the kitchen where possible and, and cooking for all kinds of different people even now. Oh, I just think it's, you know, the greatest pleasure that we can we can give our friends and our family and ultimately the community is to cook for them if you're okay in the kitchen. You know, if you're happy to wear an apron and do the washing up and more importantly you can put flavour together, then I just love that. That's that's the essence of who I am is sharing food. Yeah, and I, I do love that. You know, in somewhat, some people when they've been doing the same job for a really long time, they kind of lose that spark or they lose that love, but you can tell that you still have it. I mean, anyone who's been lucky enough to be invited to one of those big dinners at your house knows that the love is definitely still there. Oh, it's, it's my passion, Jules. You know, it's something that's never wavered in all the um, activities and services and things that I've done in my life, it all comes back to food or it all starts with food. And really that was a natural extension to move into nutrition uh, from the restaurant business. And in those days when I began to retrain or I began to get more interested in, in food and health, people kept asking me, they said, but what's, what's, what have restaurants and nutrition got to do with each other? Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, do it. <laughs> it's everything. <laughs> it's everything, exactly. <laughs> so, Sam, you mentioned food as medicine as being your focus, and I know you're really big on gut health as well. And we know gut health's not just about sauerkraut, contrary to popular opinion on Instagram <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> how can food heal us, and what foods do we need to eat and avoid for a healthier gut? Look, without minimising, you know, the decades of work we've all put together and in, into industry and into our patients, friends and clients, it really comes down to pH. It really does. You know, in our Australian diet and perhaps the Western diet, we tend to have too much acidity. Perhaps we have too many grains and other foods that, that create an inflammatory response. And so if we can help to alkalise the system a lot more, reduce that inflammation, we tend to have a soother and more safe gastrointestinal pathway. And I think that if we can understand or fathom that too much acidity creates too much heat, 
too much heat therefore generates particularly bad um, microbiome or, or poor gut health because your good health, uh, good gut health or the probiotics cannot thrive, then I think we get um, a layman's snapshot into why we need to alkalize the body a little bit more. Yes, the fermented foods and so forth that we see are so popular now, they've been around forever, haven't they? I mean, miso soup to the Japanese, their fermented bean paste and so forth are the backbone of food as medicine. But something as good as uh, cooked spinach, which is mucilaginous, aloe vera, any slippery foods such as sautéed mushrooms become a little bit slippery, they still help or can help to rebuild and repair the uh, mucous membrane within the intestinal wall. Yeah, so it is so much more than sauerkraut, so much more. So much more than sauerkraut. (laughs) Now, you touched upon miso soup, and I know you have a really huge love of Japanese food and you've got your head around the flavours. How did that all come about? Uh, When I was in um, fourth grade, way back when, Japanese language was part of our curriculum, as was the culture. So every time we went to a Japanese class in the classroom, we'd either be cooking Japanese food, folding origami, writing kanji, learning katakana and hiragana. And I continued that right up until HSC and into university when I left school. I was at Melbourne University studying Japanese um, advanced. I think it was 1B was the, the one if you'd already studied a bit of Japanese, which I had through school. And at the same time, I got a job in a Japanese restaurant. and very serendipitously they gave me this job and I had to wear a kimono twice a day what was the word bundle myself around the restaurant in ghetto which are the wooden thongs that you may have seen and obviously I'm not Japanese and I wasn't necessarily the most geisha graceful like component (laughs) but Michiko-san who was the most hilarious Japanese woman who would sneak in cold sake you know at the drop of a hat on arrival at about 11 o'clock in the morning (laughs) Jules she taught me so much you know she firstly she taught me how to dress in a kimono that took three days of intensive training (laughs) she taught me to cook sukiyaki yosinabe and shabu shabu at the table the Japanese and Chinese staff you know this is 1984-85 taught me Japanese ingredients and no one could really speak English. So it was very much scratch and smell and I was lucky enough to speak enough restaurant Japanese to survive, you know, my first year. And that's really where my authentic love or my love of authentic Japanese flavours and the culture and the shared table and passing the rice and the miso soup really comes from. And, of course, there's a, a deep Japanese food as medicine and Zen macrobiotics and so forth it is intertwined within their healthy food culture as well. Yeah, why do you think that culture is so healthy and that, that, you know, the authentic Japanese food is so healthy? Well, contrary to, you know, more popular Japanese food, which is highly processed and often laced with lots and lots of sugar, you know, the essential Japanese diet is not far from what we know of the Okinawan diet. So being a group of islands or a series of islands, you know, the Japanese diet is surrounded by rice and fish sea vegetables which which i know that you know is is part of my um, gastronomic palate and the fact that they they live so close to the ocean so they've always got that fish component that deep sea oily fish omega-3s 
and their beautiful Japanese aesthetic. You know, if you've ever had a bento box, even in modern Japanese restaurants, there's a Japanese aesthetic that encourages you to look and, and taste the food long before you eat it. You know, the, the visual experience, the sensory pleasure of the whole component as you walk into a traditional Japanese restaurant, the tatami on the floor, maybe the way you sit, the green tea. There's a whole ceremony around Japanese food, which I believe is part of the ultimate experience. And it's not just about how much rice you can eat or, you know, the teriyaki chicken. Yeah. Or how macrobiotic you can be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a, all-encompassing holistic approach to food and that's not the right way to describe Japanese food but I think that'll resonate with those of you who are listening. Yeah and it's funny that the more interviews I do for this podcast the more common threads I start to see and one in particular is uh, it came from Marcus Pierce who's a mutual friend of ours who recently went to Ikaria in Greece and he came back talking about not just slow food because you know we're all into slow food you know slow cooking we we all realize now that that's you know that, that can be quite healthy and nourishing but he talked about slow eating and that's what it sounds like with that sort of ceremony as well with the with the eating in Japan that it's very social and you don't rush your food i think the more that we can appreciate the food on our plate rather than the food on our iPhone, you know, that's our connection. It really is about taking the time to savour the flavours, but the visual experience as well. And to use an old expression, which is hopefully gluten-free in your book, to break <laughs> bread. You know, it's we need to come back to this shared table or even, and I know that you probably also have some solo meals at home while you're working and, and doing the podcasts and all the other amazing work you do that you prepare yourself a beautiful plate of food. And I just think that's part of the tactilious nature of eating. You know, it's getting connected to our ingredients, how they all come together and the synergy of food, how that ingredient responds when it's blended, emulsified, whisked or whatever it may be or united with that other ingredient. And I think the slow approach is really important. You know, sharing food and eating with our loved ones I think food tastes better when we share plates as opposed to having an individual plate of our own. Would you agree? I love it. Yep. I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you can be eating the healthiest food in the whole world, but if you're stressed and if you're rushing it and if you're freaking out over the ingredients, it's not actually going to digest well. So what was the point? Well, you know, it's like having the green smoothie on the run, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, they're, they're very economical and insofar as time-wise and they – highly highly nutritious and all those things but if we're sculling that on the melbourne tram or we're racing to the tram stop or popping it you know in the canister that sits within the car are we actually taking the time to enjoy all those amazing nutrients that you've just blended together so i think even we need to look look at uh fast food breakfasts and acknowledge what they're doing for us rather than wolfing them down and, and scoffing as we go yeah, I love that. Healthy fast food is still fast food, people. Yeah, that's right. You know, we just need to kind of sit down and enjoy it rather than gulp it all down in one go. Yeah, love it, love it, love it, love it. <laughs> now, Sam, 
you've got a very pragmatic and honest style when it comes to some of the stuff that you write and speak about. And that's one of the things that I really, really, really love about you. You never pretend to be some godlike green smoothie drinking health figure. You're pretty quick to talk about having a cheeky wine or a croissant here and there. You're all about balance. And sometimes you even admit to the odd health challenge, like your recent post about your colonoscopy, which you documented in glorious detail. That was one of my favorite posts ever. I know, that really struck a chord with you, didn't it? <laughs> it touched a lot of people. It touched me quite deeply too, I can assure you. But um, <laughs> I, I believe, and this is probably testament because so many people wrote to me and commented also on that blog post, that I was just voicing what a lot of people are fearing, you know. Yeah. I, I was really frightened going into that um, into that procedure, and I've had a lot of surgery. I've broken my leg in lots of places, and have had you know six months in the Alfred Hospital, six weeks. I'm sorry, six weeks where I couldn't walk, I couldn't get out of bed because my leg was so badly broken. So I'm no stranger to um, anaesthetic and surgery, but it really freaked me out. And when I woke up, Jules, I thought I was in a restaurant. <laughs> I was dreaming that I was in a restaurant and I'm trying to get the waiter's attention until I realised that waiter was wearing a surgical gown. Nice. And so was I <laughs> of a different kind. But look, I'm, as you know, I call a spade a spade and I think particularly in the wellness arena that the more authentic you are, the better. I don't know how to be, uh, how to lose authenticity. You know, I, I it's just not in my nature, I think, that, you know, this is who I am and perhaps that's my inner publican as well. This is what you get, you know. If you cannot be honest about what you're going through or the health messages that you're endeavouring to dish up, then you're a phony. And, you know, that particular, you know, imposter syndrome or anything like that, that doesn't resonate with me or my messages. Perhaps if I was a little bit less uh, less um, authentic, I'd be in a different position to where I am now, but that's not who I am. I'm true to myself and my core beliefs. Yeah. Do you think it's possible we both learned a no-bullshit-style working in pubs in Melbourne? <laughs> yeah, of course, you know. I, I just think that particularly in Australia, you know, Australians are very straight down the line, you know. They'll call call you on your bullshit and... If they don't, you know, they'll strike you down in other ways, whether it's a tall poppy syndrome or it's just the nature, I think, of who we are. You know, we love that about that little Aussie battler, you know, and I think I think that hopefully shines through with a lot of the most authentic people, particularly in the health um, environment. And I know, you know, we can sit down with our mate Marcus and chew the fat and just, you know, have a great laugh. And look at the food trends and the wellness fads and the three of us will just crack crack each other up because mm. we know that it's a, there's a veneer there that it's very superficial and yet we search for the bigger the bigger clues or we want to unveil the real truths about longevity and optimal health and wellness. Yeah, so when you're talking about that veneer, do you think we're getting an artificial perception of how some health bloggers actually live like do you think we're just seeing a highlight reel that's really curated and is that a good thing or a bad thing i think it's an okay thing jules as long as we know that like a duck on the water there's a mad paddling going on underneath yeah you know, i think if we take it with a grain of organic salt that we're never going to 
post in our view an ugly photograph of ourselves are we i mean i'm not great at the selfie thing i'll have a crack if you know someone wants a photo straight away but no one's ever going to post a, a photograph of themselves if they're feeling they look 10 kilos heavier i mean let's face it well you know that's that's pretty honest but i think that we're it's very easy to be enchanted by the illusion of social media and if you're not feeling particularly strong, happy, um, genki, as they say in Japanese, on the day and you're immediately looking at someone with abs the size of, I don't know, <laughs> the size six or I don't know, I don't know the language you, someone else might, but, you know, if someone's super cut and you've just scoffed down half a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, that's not going to resonate <laughs> with you. <laughs> no. So I think that, you know, we've just got to realise that that is – you know, it's best in show on Instagram or, or Facebook. Yeah. But, you know, I'm happy to talk about the low points as well, you know. I mean, I think we need to talk about our low points. We live on a planet that has a North Pole and a South Pole. We live on the polarity. We live in a place of contrast. And if we have nothing to compare to, then how do we choose from the great buffet of life? The great buffet of life. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's getting turned into an Instagram quote, mate. That certainly is. Knock yourself out, baby. You can ah. use that. <laughs> Woo! Track the source. That's all I ask in this time of uh, lack of integrity with lots of people. We just keep your integrity strong, you know. That's always my message, hey? Yeah. So in your great buffet of life, Sam, how do you achieve balance day to day? You know, it seems to be getting easier as I've got older. I used to think, oh, you know, I have to run that mountain or I have to climb this or I have to do this many hours work a day. And I actually go with how I'm feeling now. I think my routine is breaking down and perhaps it's evolving as the more work that I'm able to do online, so to speak, works at less conventional hours and that sometimes we do our best work after conventional hours and so forth. So I've learned to take the pressure off myself. If I want to take the day out of work or office life or whatever and travel and, and drive and so forth, then I'm now becoming a lot more okay with that because I know that my working day can often start at 5am and it, sometimes it might finish at 7pm. And I'm, you know, I haven't rolled a keg of beer all day in those hours. <laughs> it's more about how much intellectual application I put into the work that I do how much I give to my clients. For example, I've just finished close to a three-hour mentoring workshop with a client here in Byron Bay. That requires lots of energy. But tonight I'll probably work until seven so I can take the bulk of tomorrow off. Does that make sense? You know, it's that's the work-life balance. And when the, when the waves are good and the swell's in, then, you know, we'll go surfing, won't we? Or I'll swim most mornings yeah. in the ocean. So I take it as it comes now rather than having the rigidity that I'm slowly growing out of at the age of 50. <laughs> Go figure. Go figure. I did love that blog post you wrote when you turned 50 as well. That was a doozy. Yeah, it was a bit spooky, but, you yeah. know, yeah. I oh. need to live with it now. <laughs> Can I put some links in the show notes to said blog posts about colonoscopies yeah, and 50th birthday? Yeah, please do, of course. <laughs> I will. They're awesome. They're, they're just they're, – what was the um I think the quote was something along the line was it fuck me I'm 50 Sam yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sweetheart, I would never 
never swear on your podcast, but yes, you're exactly right. Oh. Well, I think it proceeded well. F me, I'm 50. <laughs> what have I got to show for it? Something like that. <laughs> we put and a little... Like, we yes. put a little E for explicit at the start of every podcast just because I know that I might. You can drop the F-bomb. <laughs> it's my I podcast. I can do that if I yeah, want. Yeah, knock yourself out. Absolutely, girl. Exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned jumping into the ocean to recharge. In How else do you uh, exercise self-care? What other things do you do? I've been a yogi for a long time. You know, even toward the mid-90s, um, I kind of discovered yoga because the injuries in my leg were quite horrific and so the scar tissue was quite arresting. And in the days of the pub, you know, during Christmas, we'd work up to 12 hours on our feet in, in pub land and that's really hard yakka, you know, waiting tables. And I think in those days we would turn over probably five to 600 meals a day. So I had to exercise some self-care that wasn't just gym-oriented. I used to do a lot of gym work and uh, leg press to strengthen my right leg. Then I discovered yoga and uh, that really helped to loosen. Obviously, we know that, you know, it creates more flexibility, but it took the pressure off. So yoga has been a strong practice of mine, you know, a lifelong practice, I'd like to say, for a very long time, for um, almost 30 years now, maybe 25. And that is my default. So swimming in the ocean, swimming in a swimming pool has always been my first rehab because that's all I could do for rehab because I couldn't walk. And then yoga came to me later in life, I guess, insofar as rehabilitation, and I've never let it go. Maybe a month might pass where I haven't been close to a mat, but the concepts and the philosophies of yoga are always with me. You know, we, we know that yoga, asana, is only one of the eight limbs of yoga. And I taught it for about eight or ten years with Pilates, and these days... In Byron Bay, particularly through, during a not-so-cold winter, I practiced Bikram yoga and I found Bikram because it was a lot nicer to some parts of my injuries than doing upside-down Miss Jane inverted poses. <laughs> <laughs> and I find the heat helps the scar tissue, it really does. And most importantly um, for me, it helps my mind and the discipline of it and I like the way it helps my enteric nervous system it helps my digestive function really well so really well uh, it supports my digestion greatly yeah and I like how you talked about kind of doing it seasonally as well not just Bikram all the way through like a greater focus on it when our weather's cold I like that yeah yeah I like yin yoga you know yin yoga really works for a, a busy mind like mine I like just to be able to do six poses you know in an hour and a half or something like that and really drop into those poses, particularly, you know, around my hips and my low back and so forth and where they're scarring, that really, really helps. You know, I think in the years, decades gone by, I used to try and be an Ashtanga yogi and, oh, my goodness, Jules, I can't do all that anymore. <laughs> you know, Chaturanga Dandasana, absolutely, and lots of that, but, you know, it's too fast for me. It's like, slow down, girlfriend, you go fast enough on a daily basis. That's it. Sometimes these type A personalities uh, need a little bit of balance in the other direction. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Sam, I know you recently wrote a pretty extensive research piece on superfoods, so I wanted to chat with you about that because, um, yeah, superfoods are such a hot topic right now. And I know you're just the person to bust through some of the myths and also tell us some of the truths because 
Some people think that superfoods are the bee's knees and then others swear that it's not worth the money and I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. What's your take? Okay, so having been, I guess, quite versed in this now and, yes, I wrote a research paper about it and have taught superfood cooking classes for eight years now in various formats, uh, including elements of raw food, which I still teach in depending on the season. So superfoods really came into fruition, in my book anyway, um, really as I guess, you know, the raw food movement started to gain momentum and we could really enhance some of our recipes with maca and mesquite and, and use chia in a way to soothe the digestion and so forth and alleviate um, hunger by feeling fuller longer with some of the amazing ingredients. How they came to be classified as superfoods is really a marketing tool more than anything. And my paper is titled Who Makes a Superfood Super? So I wasn't just as focused on the strength of the food or the powerhouse of the food. It was who drives the marketing trend. And it really is marketers. It's nutritionists to a certain extent like myself, but it was the marketing ploy. And when I really looked beneath, I looked at what is the merit of that said food and really one of the foods that come up on top of the list from a powder or a supplement, which we might call it, is maca as a hormone adaptogen and it has a lot of merit and the health practitioners I interviewed talk a lot about the benefits of maca and one, one man in particular started taking it and he noticed he had more and more energy to the point where he had to stop taking it because he barely needed to sleep anymore. It was so miraculous. <laughs> I thought we used to have coffee for that tool. Um, the other superfood that doesn't get any any um, support but is probably one of the densest nutrient powerhouses is watercress. And while everyone bangs on about the kale, kale sits amongst 45 foods, I think there were, that were tested on this particular scale mid-range, whereas watercress tops the charts. So I look at why... Does that food hold merit? And watercress in particular is very bitter. And it's so it's endive and so, so some of our other dark leafy vegetables and that helps to stimulate our digestive fire. So look at the nutrient density around some of these foods. And then I might compare that with coconut water, which has no super magic powers except that it rehydrates. You know, and I think if we classify uh, something like coconut water as a superfood, we're literally barking up the wrong tree. You know, it's, it doesn't have what we're sold off that it does. You know, that is a marketing ploy. It's a great thirst quencher, I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah, but people are, you know, touting it as being like the electrolyte fixer and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, you could also get potassium from, I don't know, a banana. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you can also have a squeeze of lime or lemon in water, which I find is probably the greatest thirst quencher particularly you know in our hot days up here in Byron Bay and surround so I just like to dish it up with some with some truths and debunk some of the myths around superfoods and what we really have to understand is that a lot of what we receive as superfoods in Australia are heavily heavily imported and they've traveled far flung destinations to arrive on our doorstep they've been in quarantine for a long time and what is their actual nutrient density once they've landed on our kitchen bench from the supermarket or whole food market's shelves? So we need to analyse that. We need to look at something like cacao, 
which either comes from Bali or South America. And if we're buying raw cacao, how do we know it's really raw? If there's no press in South America, which allegedly I was told that, you know, in, in my research, if there's not a cold press, then how can we gauge the constant temperature of the sun that sun dries the cacao and before it's, um, as it dries and then it's pulverized into the powder? So I just encourage people to be a little bit more curious, to be digestive de- detectives, as I've always called them. And just to see where that's coming from, we know what we've done by importing too much Bolivian quinoa, that our Bolivian counterparts can no longer afford their staple seed. So how do, how do we how do we feel with that ethically? You know, why have we imported so much that even the locals can't afford their own food? Does that resonate with you, Jules? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I know we've talked before about what you call peak kale. And the, there's a bit of an issue with the, you know, people really like the, the overpopularity of kale at the moment and what that's going to do to our farmers. Yeah, absolutely. I know that kale kind of grows pretty easily. And one farmer that I worked with um, as a supplier, he was a supplier to a kitchen I was running, he had to plant more and more kale. He literally had to clear away the broccoli beds and all the other cruciferous vegetables just so he could satisfy the demand for kale now you know that might be okay but surely that then pushes the price of broccoli up for example you know we've got to look at what is a consumer demand of course and what do people actually want but what else do we want to be growing and in in the you know the gross domestic product how does that sit and what does it do to the economy of scale globally yeah, and and it's really it's it's not like we're saying to people out there don't have your acai or don't have your goji or don't have your kale or don't have your coconut water. Mm. But I think it's important to understand that they're not the be all and end all. They're just fashionable at the moment, and there's probably other foods like, for example, kale. You could also eat broccoli and get the same effect, or acai. You could probably get blueberries and get the same effect. Absolutely, absolutely. And if they're those blueberries are grown literally around the corner or up the street, surely their their density and their powerhouse and their superfood capacity would be greater than bringing in something from overseas, particularly to a large island called Australia that we live on. Yeah. You know, and how much light have they been exposed to and what was the harvesting like and who was wearing what when they were harvested and all yeah. of those things, you know, as opposed to can we get that locally grown can we buy it from the farmer's market? Can we even get that in a supermarket if we can track down or trace the provenance of that ingredient? No, we don't have to find out where everything comes from, but I think it's healthy for us to understand that perhaps it was grown more locally. And that's our, print, our food um, food miles and, you know, a 100-mile or a local food footprint that I think we should embrace a bit more of in particular our local or indigenous Australian foods that we should start to be a bit more curious about. Yeah, totally. So talk to me about the importance of local produce. Well, we support the whole ecosystem when we support locally. Now, as a disclaimer, I don't have the opportunity to buy everything local. You know, there are still some things I need to buy that are imported and you know, I don't always just go to the farmer's market. It's not always on when I happen to be home and I run cooking classes all over the place. So I need to 
find my produce everywhere and I'm okay with that. I think we need to be a little less arrogant about where our produce comes from to a certain extent as as in if we need to go to a supermarket, you know, sometimes that's what people need to do and we need to honour that. But if we can choose produce that is perhaps not imported, such as mangoes, such as citrus, you know, if we're having citrus and it's not in season, should we be having something that is also as immune boosting when it's in season? And a classic example is something like watermelon, which is very popular still in Melbourne in the wintertime. But as we know, watermelon is a summer fruit. It grows in a great vast capacity above the ground in the summertime. So if we're trying to eat that in winter, it's not natural for it to grow in the winter. And we we are encouraged to eat watermelon in the summer because it's very hydrating. So perhaps that's a local food, for example, we can find when it's in season. And the same goes through, you know, our local foods here um, in Byron Bay, which we're lucky to live in such a food bowl. And when we eat locally, we're also eating food that is growing in a similar environment of the breath of the air that we're breathing and the earth that we're walking on. So how do these concepts translate to our city dwelling friends? Because you and I are so lucky to live in this glorious food bowl, but what tips have you got to help people in the city eat seasonally and locally? Because I'm sure you did it in Melbourne. Well, I, I endeavoured to, you know, I I lived on Smith Street in Collingwood, you know, I I would shop at the Victoria Market. I would ride my bike down there or drive down there with my three-legged dog and <laughs> get whatever I could or shop um, to a certain degree at what became very expensive organic uh, markets or whole food shops and so forth. So, yes, I would try to, but it's intuitive, isn't it? You know, you know the berries and tomatoes tend to taste better in summer because they ripen then so often in the winter. Even macrobiotics will tell you this, you know, we – we need to eat those foods that are buried in the ground because they're, they have a denser amount of nutrients. And as spring comes, they start to rise up and they shoot towards the sun, such as a Dutch carrot or a spring carrot or even what we call in Melbourne a spring onion. You know, it grows up to meet the sun in the springtime. So even if you can't practice and purchase seasonality, having that awareness of seasonal produce will help you in your food choices ultimately. It's not always possible, but preferably buying a whole bunch of spinach as opposed to bagged lettuce and bagged spinaches is always a good idea. Yeah, that's a really good tip. Have you got any other actionable tips that you could give someone who wants to eat healthier but they're just starting out and feeling a little bit overwhelmed? I think listen to your listen to your gut, you know, listen to your intuition if you had grandparents that you were quite um, close to, what did they eat? If you have parents that, you know, are a little bit older, what were they eating? What else comes out of a, a market or a supermarket that's not wrapped in plastic or cardboard? Yeah, yeah. One of the great takeaways is buying bread that's not sliced, preferably in a brown paper bag. Yeah, you can take it home and slice it and freeze it. Like, that's that, right. That can happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I just think we need to come back to basics and we need to lose this arrogance around healthy eating. And, you know, I've written prolifically over the years, almost a decade ago, about orthorexia nervosa, about, you know, being so het up that you have to eat pure, clean food that you know, we need to have 
all bits and pieces, you know. It's okay to have a bit of aeroplane food. Just don't eat it all the time. But what else are you going to do? Turn up at your meeting starving and therefore not have brain function? You know, I just think we've got to take our, take it back a bit, take it back a notch and just take the pressure off ourselves and choose wisely and just start to eat more dark green leafy vegetables that preferably are not heavily sprayed. Yeah, and that's why I love your approach because you you get people to the next level but without the stress. Yeah, I mean, we know what happens with stress. We have enough cortisol running around our bodies. You know, it's very hard to become healthier when you've got the stress hormones running rampant through your system. So if we take the stress away from our health messages and our nutritional choices, hopefully we can move toward the next stage of our healing journey with a little more peace and ease. Yeah, and and you're right. I think I, I covered that cortisol thing a couple of episodes ago. It might have been episode 19 or 18, which was the, yeah. the, the adrenal fatigue episode. And it's like cortisol stops your digestion in its tracks. So if you're stressing about the food that you eat, you're actually stopping your body from digesting it. Absolutely. You arrest that whole digestive function. And what's the purpose then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Money down the dunny, Sam. Money down the dunny, Jules. Oh, God. Oh, you're a funny money down the dunny, you are, funny girl. It's very true. Sam, you have a beautiful website and a really awesome book called The Healing Feeling and loads of other goodies on offer. Can you please tell our lovely listeners where to find you? Sure. So the website is foodhealthwealth.com. There's also byronbaycookingschool.com.au and that, that comes over to the main site and that's, um, that offers corporate events and executive experiences up here in our beautiful Northern Rivers regions and small group private tuition in food as medicine. That's also available worldwide. Um, in Melbourne, in our hometown, there's a masterclass that pops up every two to three months as well. So foodhealthwealth.com will take you to the main um, homepage and you'll find all the recipes on the website. There's a shop there where you can download, purchase and download the ebook of The Healing Feeling, which is a book that I published in 2012, which is Recipes and Remedies from Australia's Leading Spa Ship. There's also a physical book. Um, of that that you can also purchase and if you sign up to the database and you want to subscribe to my tribe then you can do so on foodhealthwealth.com and you come and join the party and for a short time there's a free downloadable ebook called celebrate well which is food and flavors from my home kitchen and i've just got to say i've been to some of your live events and Oh, my God. Seriously, people, if you're in Melbourne or you're in Byron and you get an opportunity to go to one of these events, please do so. You don't just learn about food. You come away with an absolute complete new set of dad jokes that you can use going forward. <laughs> what are you trying to say, sister? <laughs> that your jokes are awesome, Sam. They're awesome. <laughs> oh, I'd love to say they were my dad's, but I make them up as I go along. That's probably part of the problem. <laughs> oh, I love it. Sam Going, thank you so much for spending the time on Shiny Healthy You today. It's really been a pleasure. I knew this would be so much fun. I haven't laughed this much in ages. Hey, that's the spirit. It's always a pleasure, Jules, and <laughs> congratulations on your podcast and keep doing what you do so well. Thank you, beautiful. Okay, enjoy. Bye now. Bye. 
I hope you enjoyed that very frank and fun interview with the lovely Sam Gowing. I know Sam has certainly changed the way I look at superfoods and she's also really helped me to appreciate local produce, so I hope you found some gold in there too. If you liked this episode, don't go anywhere, hit subscribe and you'll get a new Shiny Healthy You episode every week. How awesome will that be? And if you're into healthy cooking, make sure you head to julesgalloway.com and download your free mini ebook. It's called Shiny Healthy Whole Foods and there are some yummy gluten, dairy and sugar-free recipes inside. Have a beautiful week out there. Stay shiny and bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.